John, and today we're going to discuss uh, women's role and men's role uh, in marriage and in ministry, uh, and discuss issues such as complementarianism, egalitarianism, uh, hit a few of the passages uh, that may uh, be cons- uh, difficult passages, maybe, uh, I think, because of our cultural context. Uh, but basically a broad discussion then on the difference, uh, you know, the, the, the meaning of uh, genderedness and, and how uh, that is reflected as part of our being created in God's image and how that then might change up as uh, we are both uh, as sinners and in salvation. So uh, let's start. John, you you, uh, mentioned a little bit uh, about John Howard Yoder, and maybe let's just throw that out there in the beginning to kind of to set the context uh, that... uh, with the idea of revolutionary subordination. Yeah, and I mean, I don't. We don't have to get into it. Uh, obviously, by using Yoder's work, we're not necessarily condoning uh, Yoder's life in any way. And so, uh, it's odd that he would write so eloquently, actually, on the subject of women having a role in ministry, but uh, not quite understanding what the role of women should be, even in just you know polite company. Um, but enough said about that. John Howard Yoder, especially in the book, The Politics of Jesus, he begins to address this notion of what he calls revolutionary subordinationism, which doesn't apply only to women in the New Testament, but also it would apply to in different ways to slaves and perhaps also to even um, Gentiles or Jews, depending on uh, what the mo- the majority demographic of the church that it Paul was talking to would be. But the idea is being that the church isn't necessarily trying to or doesn't need to um, just transform society into something that's better. Though Yoder thinks, and I would agree, that that does happen. The existence of the church among the the kingdoms of this world does challenge them to be better, or sometimes it causes them to react into such a way that they're much worse. But it's the idea that the New Testament is addressing people in such a way that our fundamental relationship as human beings to another human being is changed up. So in the case of slavery, for example, you have the wonderful example of Philemon and Onesimus and Paul in the New Testament. And when Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he doesn't write a letter that just immediately says you need to uh, set Onesimus free and slavery should be abolished. But actually, Paul just explains to Philemon that Onesimus is now a Christian, and so that's the basis of how Philemon has to treat him. And by the end of the letter, it's obvious to anybody who um, is reading it sympathetically and taking Paul's words and argument seriously that there's no place for slavery in the kingdom of God, or there's no place for a type of power relationship in which one person has great authority over another, or ownership of another person. And so you see that a little bit there with slavery, the idea that Paul isn't trying to abolish a system, but he's trying to convert people to Christianity, which would lead to the end result of slavery no longer even being viable. Uh, I think women's roles work much the same way, and we have to get a clear picture in our head of what women's roles might have been in the first century, and that's that, of course, they had um, no role in the synagogue service and were often relegated to simply being homemakers, uh, housekeepers uh, of the sort in Jewish society as a whole. So there is a prayer that N.T. Wright mentions, and I think Yoder may mention it as well, that was often said and is said unto this day even, which goes something along the lines of uh, the Jewish man will pray, I thank God that I was born a free man. I thank God that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile. And I thank God that I was born a man and not a woman. And so you can see how Paul in Galatians begins to reverse that. There no longer is Jew nor Greek, um, slave nor free person, no male or no female. 
And so Yoder's point then in all of this is to say that Paul doesn't necessarily need to abolish the structures of the societies of the world, but in Christianity, our relationships are changed up by our conversions to be more like Christ. And in that sense, you no longer have violent and oppressive excises of power. And that, that yeah, the Galatians passage, you know, uh, the uh, Galatians 3.28 uh, one way of looking at that is that we do identity through difference. That uh, you know, that the the prayer that is mentioned, well, clearly it's a privileging of Jewish maleness. It's a privilege of freedom. It's a privilege of being of uh, being ethnically Jewish. And Paul is saying we don't do identity in that way. Mm-hmm. It's not an obliteration of any of these categories necessarily. That's right. But it is an undoing of identity on the basis of an identity through difference. And I think fundamentally at the root of the identity through difference that you're talking about is uh, that one person is coming to be who they see themselves as or how they perceive themselves by having violent and oppressive power over the other. So you can really set any two categories that you want. Uh, to do the identity, but it's always going to be violent. It'll always be oppressive. And maybe we're already entering in, you know, that we almost need to back up and and go to Genesis, that what you have uh, prior to the fall is that, you know, what is that, that God said, let us create man in our image. And of course, the idea is that there's a plurality of persons that reflect that image. Now, while we would not want to reduce it to gender, male and female, I think that the maleness and the femaleness is certainly taken up into man's, you know, the the humankind's imaging capacity. Uh, So that if we get that straight, that the way in which we bear the image is not as absolute individuals, but it's in a plurality, a community of persons, you know, and even there in Genesis, how many persons? Well, it was, uh, first of all, that Adam and Eve are, of course, going to apprehend or understand who they are in light of the the fact that they're created uh, in God's image. That is, as Paul will say in Corinthians, you know, that the the woman is through comes through the man, the man through the woman, but the two are one in and through the Lord that God binds them together. And so in that original uh, plurality of persons, it was actually God was there in that plurality. Uh, and what happens then with the fall is that uh, the image in some way is marred. I don't, I don't think we need to be mysterious about that. Uh, it, they became alienated. In other words, this, this mm-hmm. makes it all rather uh, straightforward in that we see the woman and the man pitted against one another. They're pitted against God and uh, pitted all together, you know, against creation itself. So that alienation uh, in our relationship with other people and God and creation uh, describes the failure of the image Uh, And so the restoration of the image is going to also then include those categories. Yes, so that I think in telling the story of Genesis that way, um, it's highlighting very much that why does God create is ultimately for uh, a fulfillment of what it means to be human. And from the very beginnings of the Genesis account, and really regardless of how you read Genesis, um, what is fundamental to God bringing his creation to perfection is that at the pinnacle of that creation are going to be human beings in the image and likeness of God. And fundamental to that is the binary male and female. So that's that's very big because it's not in saying that um, oh, God created us this way just so we could procreate, or God created us this way just um, so that our a society could function in a certain way. But rather, God, in his love and wisdom, created us male and female as a part of his plan to bring us to fulfillment so that he might dwell with us. 
And in all of this, you know, once you once we start talking about uh, uh, gender as being part of the image, uh, it, it clearly includes several elements. One, it's embodied. It it is just mm -hmm. it, it we are. And again, not to reduce it to that, but neither do we want to take a take away, you know, that when salvation occurs, that the embodied. Uh, reality of being joined to Christ is very often pictured then in the language of marriage. You know, this is in Ephesians that you know uh, Paul quotes the Genesis passage: "A man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife." And of course, what he's describing there is what he's quoting is the Genesis passage. He says, "This is a great mystery." But he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. And so he runs it all together uh, to, to say that here was the original fulfillment of the, the, of the image, and specifically the image as it's taken up into marriage, uh, that, that culminates then in being joined to Christ. Maybe we're a little hesitant. Maybe this gets a little uncomfortable for us. Uh, you know, Paul in, in uh, Romans is going to use uh, the uh, sexual metaphor throughout there uh, when he's talking about the woman who, you know, would consort with another man. He's using that to describe, he's using a sexual relationship uh, to describe life under the law. Uh, you know, this is why in a Lacanian psychoanalysis, it, not because he's reading Paul, but actually he comes to Paul and discovers this. He says, you know, there is no sexual relationship. And what you have to hear there is the same thing that Paul is saying. Uh, that under the law, relationship is broken. There is alienation. Uh, that there, the law then, uh, as the mode of relation, you know, it, it's a contradiction because what the law is marking is a kind of alienation. In that passage, he then goes on to talk about, he moves from the image of the woman who would consort with another man to the dead husband. He said, but we've all, you know, that, that we are in the place of the dead husband but of course, the dead husband is the place of Christ, and then suddenly he's describing us in terms of the wedding feast of the Lamb, that the church is the bride that is, you know, we've been joined to Christ. So, yeah, and this metaphor is picked up by the early church as well. So um, you have a, a feminist theologian. Um, Sarah Coakley, who isn't a very radical feminist theologian, but she certainly is uh, trying to see how these ideas work out of the New Testament into the early church, which most people just would say is, um, you know, male chauvinist and write them off uh, on any kind of conversation like this. But what she finds in the spirituality of Gregory of Nyssa is that Gregory is actually describing our conversion in the same way as Paul, but he has taken it steps further in, in, in a metaphor. And actually, how do you do this as a, as a Christian among other Christians? And so he describes our own spiritual journey through conversion into theosis is what he's ultimately talking about. So this is beyond just uh, what we might think of as justification and sanctification. Um, is that we begin to become the bride of Christ, which for him means leaving behind uh, like a certain form of male characteristics, the same kind of masculinity that Paul's actually describing in that first part of Romans chapter 7. And we move into the position of the bride, and he talks about how that uh, transforms us. And ultimately, though, of course, for Gregory, and uh, because for what he believes about God and his apophatic theology, we almost are moving beyond 
we're moving beyond, I don't want to say maleness or femaleness, because Gregory certainly wouldn't have thought in that terms at all, but we move beyond the forms of masculinity or femininity that I think you're describing with psychoanalysis in Romans chapter 7. And Sarah Coakley, interestingly enough, brings that out as well. Oh, she references uh, the psychoanalytic literature? Yes, in reference to Gregory Nyssa. Ah, really? So, yeah, so same conversation. And all, my only point here is I wish I could explain it uh, more fully, but I'm a little rusty. You just triggered this in my mind. My only point is that there is interesting work being done on this that is locating this discussion also in the early church. I think that our our tendency here may may be exactly wrong, and that is in some way to imagine that these categories uh, are temporary and what my tendency is to think is, well, no, actually in Christ, that our our genderedness in some way may be reflected then in the resurrection body. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't yeah. be dogmatic yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, Christ certainly was. And so actually this is an argument that, so like the Eastern Orthodox Church has a really hard time thinking about women being priests because in their theology, in their sacramental theology, the priest is supposed to be standing in for Christ. And so they they take his maleness very seriously, Christ's maleness very seriously. Now, the way that works out, um, you know, I think in the end we're going to say that's not the way it has to be, or at least it certainly wasn't for the Apostle Paul, but that's also because you have a, a sacramental theology that's developed uh, quite a bit after the time period of the New Testament in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, and, and even, you know, we think, well, Christ says that there shall be no, no marriage. Well, uh, that that doesn't necessarily, uh, is not a pronouncement on the, the destiny of our gender. That's right. But That's in right. some way, genderedness in, uh, uh, bears an ontological aspect to it uh, in that we are joined to Christ then, and the picture is a gendered relationship. Again, not to reduce it to that, but neither do I think we float free from embodiment, and partly what it means to be embodied is we're gendered in a, in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that in terms of the resurrection and um, the resurrection of all things, our genderedness plays a role, and it ultimately points towards um, God, or it ultimately points towards this relationship of theosis, of us becoming like God. And that's a way, I don't think that we quite fully could get a handle on that right now, but what you, the picture that you're painting and the picture that I'm trying to explain too is to say that genderedness actually has to do with salvation. It actually has to do with God's plan for all of creation. It isn't just for, um, you know, this world, or it isn't just for the way our societies have been put together in the past, and as if we could mess with that and uh, go different directions in the future. It's not just a accident of evolution that, we're, that um, our sexual relations work the way that they do and that we're male and female. And, of course, what I think is happening in the New Testament is that the cults that are there, you know, in Ephesus that uh, Paul may be dealing with, the cult of Artemis, or mm-hmm. uh, that, that, will, that will come to be reflected in various Gnostic understandings. Uh, ironically, then, there is a privileging of femaleness in, in, in the cults. But maybe, maybe even before we get into that, you know, if you think of idolatry, uh, that what is taking place very often in, in an idolatrous understanding is that the idol is literally a phallic symbol. If you've ever studied uh, idols or I- idolatrous images, uh, literal phallic images in, uh, in Japan, it's... it's you know, one, it, it's sort of a, it, it is just the penis. I mean, there's a male penis there that uh, in, uh, uh, is reflected in particular, one particular shrine, but also in the Bodhisattvas, the, the little Buddhas, uh, they also then re, uh, reference then a, a phallic symbol. And, of course, you get that taken up 
uh, in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel starts talking about the idolaters, and he compares them, and this is the common refrain, both in the Old and the New Testament, he talks about the idolaters in terms of adultery, uh, that they have taken on a female role, and they are in pursuit then of uh, what Ezekiel will will describe as a phallic symbol on the order of a, a you know as big as that of a donkey, mm-hmm. and of course what the image is not you know the the point here is that we've not we're not talking about eroticism anymore, we're talking about in fact a kind of impossible sexuality. We're talking about a kind of heightened desire in which the sexual metaphor is at this point uh, simply the, the uh, mode of describing an exponential desire that would leave sexuality behind and what you know, takes place subsequently in Ezekiel is child sacrifice. That this <laughs> exponential desire gives way then to a kind of uh, total uh, uh, destruction or a willingness to turn everything over uh, to this desire. And of course what the idol in a sense is representative of is the failed male-female relationship. Here is uh, man pitted against woman. Here is the identity through difference. And identity through difference then uh, reified into a religion. I think the idolatrous religion is just reflective of what we always do. You know, in this, I think Derrida and the, the, the postmodernists have it right, uh, that we are always thinking in the thought, thought forms of language, of binaries, of identity through difference, and that this then gets taken up into male-female relationship. Now, I, I'm going to about to qualify this, but once you've done this, then you understand somebody like Lacan saying, well, there is no sexual relationship. But what we're saying about uh, what is happening in Christ is, no, actually, we can have relationship with God, with one another, uh, that we can enter into a corporate embodied relationship uh, that accounts for our sexuality and does not then in any way leave it behind. So I think yeah. that's that's partly, uh, you know, what's taking place. You talk a little bit, John. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of difficult passages here. The, let's talk about the one in Ephesians, uh, you know, that Paul... And, and in Timothy, both, I think, which is, we were thinking it's probably written to Ephesus. Uh, describe the situation there, then, and why that the uh, understanding the context may make a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, actually, I just want to point out that what we've done so far is just to say that maleness and femaleness matters, but it matters in a way that, isn't readily available to us based off of the cultural norms of our day, nor was it based off the cultural norms of Paul's day. So that a part of what it means to have fallen into sin, and even if it's not outright idolatry, there is a form of idolatry that is still rebellious to God. One could think of Romans chapter 1 and that genealogy of sin that messes up the way that we understand sexuality and gender and what it means to be males and females. And so that's sort of in the backdrop to Paul's words, I think, to Timothy and 1 Timothy. And uh, I also want to say we're mainly following N.T. Wright's interpretation of this passage, but I think it's a good interpretation. You know, his scholarship is well thought out that goes into his arguments here. Um, And so as he tackles 1 Timothy, he obviously thinks that Paul wrote it, uh, even though he doesn't make that argument. He looks at it in such a way that just in engaging the bit of, first bit of chapter 2 that we see Paul brings to the forefront of this letter, there, there must be some kind of problems between men and women in the church 
that uh, Timothy is working in. And if that church is Ephesus, then in the background to the culture in Ephesus is, of course, the Temple of Artemis, which is an all-female cult. And so oftentimes we read it as saying, oh, Paul, or people have read it as saying that, oh, Paul doesn't want women to be in charge at all. But really what Paul might be saying is just because... um, He's a, he wants women and men to both be active and influential in the church. He's not trying to reverse the Jewish order and make it look just like the pagan order that's there in Ephesus. So it's not as if he's trying to say, okay, well, women didn't have a role at all in Jewish societies. Uh, now, since we're uh, in the kingdom of God, which is a Jew and Gentile society, really just a Christian society, uh, that now women are in charge. And that seems to be the pushback that was happening to Timothy. So Paul writes this letter to him, and that's all sort of in the background. And one of the things that N.T. Wright highlights is that this portion of scripture is usually read as a prohibition, but actually the center focus of it is a positive thing, that he is advocating that women should be given the ability and the time and the right to be able to read scripture and to learn. And so if people are having issues with women being active in the church here in Ephesus, Possibly it's because they really have gotten some things wrong about Scripture. But that would be uh, understandable because in the Jewish societies, women weren't trained in the Old Testament Scriptures the same way that men were. And the Scriptures that Paul's referring to, or the Scriptures that the church would have been using at this time period, very much would have been the Old Testament. So uh, one of the first main things that sticks out is Paul is actually not just saying that uh, women shouldn't teach. He's saying, well, if if too many people are have gotten upset about women teaching in this church, uh, why don't you allow them to receive instruction and uh, submit themselves? Now, submit themselves to who? Uh, oftentimes, we take that as to the men in the church, but uh, N.T. Wright points out that actually it fits just as well, if not better, with the passage that they would submit themselves to Christ or to God just like the men have also been commanded to do. And so rather than being a prohibitive passage, Paul is arguing or explaining to Timothy a way in which Timothy can handle these tensions that are there between men and women in leadership in Ephesus by making sure the women who may be prepared to teach at some point uh, are trained and understand what they need to be teaching about. And so Paul is making space for them to be able to be educated. Which is already a breaking down of uh, standard Jewish and uh, uh, notions about women, which, of course, we already have that in the New Testament. Jesus has already done that in the case, you know, with the story of Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. The significance there is that, no, Mary is given the right to sit at the feet of the teacher uh, like anyone else. And so it may be a simple yes. situation here. Yeah, and so in the Gospels, and I think we can think about the the church as sort of expanding from Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is radical, but Jesus teaches with such authority, he's able to do things uh, that work for him, but are still a struggle in the immediate time period that follows. So Jesus is very clear about teaching women. He teaches outcasts of society that are sick, that are slaves, that are poor. It doesn't matter. He's willing to associate with people and teach them. And what he's saying that really flies in the face of Jewish wisdom of the, t- of the day is that everyone has the opportunity and the social status to be able to do theology or to talk about God, to understand what it means to be a follower of God. And so that's quite radical, uh, but of course Jesus is in some ways just able to get away with it. You would think that that would have made an indelible impression upon the apostles, and perhaps it did, but the problem still remains that society at large is not willing to accept the the radicalness of Christianity uh, very easily, and we still see the same thing today. So that may be some of the background tension. And and in this, it's I think it's good to bring back uh, Yoder's notion of revolutionary subordination. What's happening here, you know, in uh, Timothy, uh, 
it's similar to what's happening, you know, when Yoder's talking about Romans uh, chapter 13. Uh, it's not that as Christians we obliterate uh, the structures of state or we become revolutionaries or in terms of the home, we do away with standard mores about ma male and female. You know, Paul is, he's going through that and saying, well, no, go ahead. And, you know, women should look like women. Men should look like yeah. men. Yeah, and First Corinthians especially. Yeah, that that uh, and and of course the First Corinthians passage, uh, you know that the Wright's point is there. The one thing that cannot mean is women are to remain absolutely silent, because right before that in First Corinthians he describes what women leaders are supposed to do when they yeah. speak to the congregation. That's right. Uh, but in this instance, so he, it is the revolutionary subordination again. Go ahead and, you know, uh, you're going to go ahead. You're not going to become, you know, uh, genderless. You're not going to mm -hmm. fall into the pattern either of the temple of uh, Artemis. Uh, am I saying, is it Artemis there in Ephesians? Yeah, yeah. And that, that corresponds to verse 12 in First Timothy. The, the way N.T. Wright treats that verse is that it makes just as much sense to translate it along the lines of saying that I do not set up a woman and authority over men to teach or exercise, uh, to teach uh, or exercise that authority, but rather to remain uh, quiet as they are. And what we always... we have taken that to mean something along the lines of, well, women have no authority over men. But with the fact that this is probably written to a church that's in Ephesus, is that he's saying, I'm not reversing the social order so that women are now in authority of men like they would be uh, in the Artemis cult. So he's not reversing the order. He's just trying to say that women can do it, can teach and do these things as well. Men can teach and do these things as well. Both groups, both uh, male and female, need to be sub need to submit themselves to the authority of Christ or to the authority of God. They uh, writes translation of the verse. They must be allowed to study undisturbed, in full submission to God. I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate them, verse 12, dictate to them, they should be left undisturbed. Uh, so he's allowing for a revolutionary role for women in terms of Judaism, mm -hmm. but he's also balancing that out. He doesn't want uh, what has happened in the cult there in Ephesus That's right. uh, to, to occur in the church. And of course, that it's interesting, it's, it's almost like the writers of the New Testament uh, uh, are kind of aware of the problem that will develop in a Gnostic understanding, yes, in, yeah. uh, that these cults then seem to already kind of reflect uh, the idea of, you know, in Artemis where the women did the leading, and the men then were kind of their, uh, their subordinate, well, they were their subordinate. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what he, so the way he paraphrases verse 12 is, I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that previously men held authority over women. And uh, when N.T. Wright explains, well, why would Paul need to say this? He points to the fact that this huge temple, and it's probably one of the most famous temples in the ancient world, was a female-only cult. And this is something that was taken up first you know, among the Greeks and then taken up by the Romans. And so it's massively important. The cult of Artemis or uh, Diana is massively important in the ancient world. And, of course, that's what he's doing in Romans 1. He's describing the root problem of homosexuality, of you know, women having relations with women, is actually prior to that, and in in Paul is saying that they've turned uh, to creation, they've made idols, that they've, if you think again of the idol then as the, the privileging of the phallic, you know, again, it's identity through difference, which reduces, this is the contradiction, identity through difference reduces to sameness. That is, if we're going to mm -hmm. obliterate, if we're going to pursue the difference, in a sense, we obliterate any actual existing uh, difference. 
uh, there is an inherent, what I'm describing is the contradiction of uh, a kind of uh, binary in which the binary is made into a dualism or made absolute. Uh, you know, this is the whole yin-yang thing. If, if uh, it, It's very much there in Eastern thought. It's there very much there, you know, this is what Hegel is, is recognizing. Is that, mm-hmm. you know, if you did it in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the good is only good over and against the evil, the evil over and against the good, so that the evil inheres in the good, and the good and the evil, you end up with uh, neither one nor the other. The to do identity on the basis of these opposed pairs actually does away with any kind of, of difference whatsoever. Now, that may seem kind of, you know, uh, theoretical, but what Paul and I think what, what in reality happens is that when we reify uh, human sexuality, you know, as the Jews have apparently done in Galatians, uh, they are privileging maleness. And of course, if Christians are going to be circumcised, uh, there is this sense that they're going to carry this privilege of maleness into the church. And Paul is just absolutely against this. Mm-hmm. Because what it is doing is reifying in the same way ethnicity, gender, maleness, and so his recommendation to the legalizers, oh, if you're going to circumcise, just cut the whole thing off. Uh, you know, uh, he's he's talking about a complete castration or disempowerment. Yes, and emasculation. That identity through difference, uh, oh, you're going to reify that. Well, you've just done it. You've, that, that as a mode of power is actually a means of death. It's actually a disempowerment. So the revolutionary subordination is then to not fall into that trap. And I think that's what Paul is carefully working out in these passages in, you know, that we think of as difficult passages. But I think with this background, well, no, he's not. And this is, you know, Wright's point here about complementarianism or egalitarianism. You know, if complementarianism means, oh, women can't be leaders in the church, no, Paul has just said quite the opposite. Yeah. If egalitarianism means they're, they're, uh, they're completely, you know, that there's no role for them, I don't know that Paul agrees with that either, because he's also saying, "Well, no, you should, you know, you should continue to yeah. observe the cultural mores." So I'm I'm never quite sure what to do with that terminology. I don't think I like complementarianism as it's actually worked out, because it becomes a a, a means of abusive relationship yeah. to women. So I, it's a it's a benevolent patriarchy. A benevolent patriarchy. Uh, it's it's apartheid. You know, anytime you're in, you are the one in charge. You're saying, well, uh, you know, whites and blacks are equal. But of course, uh, in apartheid or in you know, even the American mm-hmm. South, that well, what that means is uh, separate but equal means separate but unequal, and that's yeah. the reality that that you get, I'm afraid, in complementarianism. And maybe this, you know, maybe this goes into, maybe we should discuss a little bit of, you know, is the man the head, and what is the meaning of headship? Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, another thing N.T. Wright discusses is that, uh, you know, the headship can mean more than one thing, just like you have a river head. <laughs> you have, uh, it's not always in t- a sense of authority sometimes it's in the sense of uh from which something comes so christ is the head of the church well he does have authority over the church but it's also in the sense that the church flows from christ and there the the idea of course and maybe you, you we just need this whole background again that once we've done away we're, we're working in a different idiom we're no longer working in an idiom of power 
in which leadership is on the basis of a top-down sort of understanding. I mean, this is the whole ministry of Jesus. This is the shift that he's bringing about. This is the guy that is their leader washing the feet. And so it's no longer, to be a leader is no longer a top-down power relationship. It's no longer a coercive relationship in which the, the head is the one who makes all the decision. No, it is the relationship of love in which love then flows through uh, Christ as head, uh, that here is the establishment of an alternative economy to that of a pi- binary identity through difference, which always works on the basis of violence and power. I mean, I, mm-hmm. in a yeah, sense, right. I, you know, I'm sure that, uh, I, I think that we bear this thing of sin in the most intimate fashion uh, first of all, in the you know that marriage is is a hard thing, but even we could make it even more intimate, and that's what Paul is doing. Paul passes from in Romans seven. He talks about this you know the salvation in terms of passage from uh, the you know the woman who would consort with another man. She's either an adulterer or not, adulteress or not. What he's describing is, oh, the law is completely definitive of this woman. Mm-hmm. And then she passes into uh, the place that Christ is. We've died and we're united with Christ. But the place that Christ is then is the place from which the law emanates. It is, the, in other words, in some way, the, the language there is very uh, unusual. We really don't know how to translate the the idea uh this is the word that you know what is it age uh Hooven or that uh hegel will take up oh yeah off a bone yes uh of suspension uh the law it, it's not that the law is obliterated it's not that the law is abolished uh but just as with gender just as with other things uh it is suspended in in terms of its uh, you know alienating power, but then in chapter seven, Paul describes he goes into human interiority, and he again describes it as identity through difference that I do what I do not want to do, what I want to do I don't do. Uh, there is one who is completely subject to the law. There is no reconciliation or reconciling these, you know, the I or the law of the mind, the law of the flesh, because by their very definition, by their very makeup, they are in an antagonistic relationship. Mm -hmm. So what Paul does with the law, he does with gender. That is that it can, or he does with the marriage relationship. It can be, if it's absolutized, it's reified, it's going to become uh, the marker of alienation. It's going to come the medium of alienation. But in Christ, in some way, the law is suspended. Gender as an absolute is not done That's away right. with. Yeah. It's not obliterated. But as an identity, it's suspended. That's right. Yeah, yeah so that no longer do they, no longer, and this is in Galatians, which isn't actually about ministry necessarily, but it is more on the uh, aspect of who are we. There is no male and no female, not because those categories are completely done away with, but because of the next line that follows, but we are all one in Christ. And so um, I think Paul is pointing towards a true relationship, a oneness, a true unity in the body of Christ that's not on the basis of any other identity but Jesus himself. And so what do we call this? Uh, I guess we Christianity. <laughs> it's neither. Uh, yeah, and I think that's just the the grand tragedy here is that this issue. I mean, and here we're in the midst of this whole thing. Every every day, somebody comes out and they've been abusive in right. sexual relationships. Uh, I think our fallenness is always, you know, expressed in and through our sexuality. It shouldn't be a real shocker. 
And of course, we all know this privately, that this is just, uh, that the, the failure of the human condition, by definition, is going to be expressed in, in, our, in our genderedness. But, uh, the, the, but that is not a, an aspect apart from or separate from the entire economy of salvation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we, we unfortunately, I'm afraid gender issues are, have become issues because we actually have salvation issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really just have missed the, 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 the idea, first of all, that we're created as a plurality of persons in an embodied you know, relationship. And our salvation then is not a, you know, souls going to heaven or, you know, individualistic you know, uh, identity, but it is a holistic resurrection in which the body of Christ is descriptive of this uh, uniting of this plurality of persons so that there is a a true holistic reconciliation. Yeah, and that's what truly living in the kingdom of God should be, so that our salvation should be realized in our lives in community. And, um, you know, in a real way, I think if we don't have the male and female relationship right, then how are we ever going to actually build a community that is the kingdom of God? Uh, this is the grand tragedy. I think that, that people who insist upon a complementarian kind of male headship in, in the sense of a top-down power relationship, uh, that's not just a gender issue. You've got a salvation issue. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you have an understand in some way if you're still tied into notions of oppressive power being a sign of your own value and worth. Again, think of Christ. Think of being, you know, the the servant of all. Think of uh, dying outside the city. Uh, mm-hmm. That as we take up our cross, it's a relinquishing of that sort of notion of. Identity, identity through power. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And so what's, as we relinquish power, we learn to truly live in the love of God. And we then truly learn to love others with the love of God. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, we all know this, where this works out uh, is in the home, in, in our most intimate mm-hmm. uh, relationships. Uh, and I think that the grand tragedy of American evangelicalism is that it's clearly not working very well, that divorce mm-hmm. rates are right. uh, statistically, at least, and I know the statistics can reflect different things, at different, but it's very clear that what is happening in the world and what is happening in the church are, are very, they're, they're, not separated. Yeah. No, there doesn't seem to be a difference. There seems really. to be no difference whatsoever. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that... that so, yeah. I think we're thinking of salvation in, in worldly terms, and we yeah. carried that right over into uh, Christianity, and it's reflected no more uh, uh, no more so than in, in uh, the, the issue of male-female relations. That's that's definitely true. So that this issue is important because not only is it eminently theological that it has to do with uh, salvation, it has to deal with the doctrine of creation and who we are, um, but it also has, to, in, in practical in the sense of, well, how do we run a church? But even more so than that, this issue cuts right to the heart of who we are as people and how do we live with one another. Uh, the, what, the, 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 you know, if you're a woman... Uh, then in a complementarian or a kind of patriarchal understanding, uh, unfortunately, I think that our full humanity, either on the side of women, that there is this loss of an you know half the human race in some way, mm-hmm. being subjugated, not being fulfilled in their capacities. But of course, it's not just that loss. It you know this is the Hegelian master-slave. 
dialectic, it's actually the master who is more lost than the slave. Yeah. Uh, because he's completely dependent for his identity upon his role of master of having a slave. And of course, I think this is what this, this issue touches upon deep issues of identity. I think more so than race, more than ethnicity. You know, Paul is including that in the slave free uh, Jew Gentile. But this one in some way goes to the very heart of who we are. Uh, the, uh, and 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 of course is un, undoing uh, the the way that we would normally do identity. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Have we covered it, John? <laughs> well, I don't. It is one of those issues that I'm sure the conversation could always go on. But at least we've um, we we've said we've kind of explained our stance anyway. Uh, that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, if I had to identify, identify myself with an understanding and the choice was complementarianism or egalitarianism, of course, it would be an egalitarianism. But again, I'm sort of with right there, uh, but also with this, the conversation that we've had, we've actually made this a more important issue than is often reflected, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. So... Yeah, it isn't. It isn't just a simple. Well, uh, what are what are women going to do in the church, or um, what do we think it means to be male and female? It is a large theological issue, and it touches on many key doctrines of Christianity. And it's sort of like the issue of nonviolence, of peaceableness. Mm -hmm. um, I think that under uh, common ways of reading the New Testament. And, of course, what we do, we put blinders on. Jesus, obviously, is teaching to turn the other cheek, to take up the cross, mm -hmm. to, to not, you know, uh, uh, the, the idea of the, the eye for an eye, that he's undoing that sort of uh, dynamic. But we do have these perverse ways of reading Scripture. We have these theological systems uh, that are so bent upon a mode or an economy and I think the the uh, gender issue and the violence issue are in fact not separate. Mm -hmm. that's, that's right. I think if you're going, if you once you recognize how the economy of salvation works out, uh, that the the that it in some way it resolves uh, the the whole notion of a kind of um, you know common idea of the way that power works. Uh, it's an undoing of the common notion of the way that leadership works. And, and maybe, you know, this is the whole point with the, the um, you know, ordination of women. Yeah, but that is just part of the whole issue of, of what church is and the way that church functions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, in a sense, we we would almost have to do another podcast and say, well, here's here's uh, first of all the very notion of a kind of role in in which uh, you know one would be ordained in the typical fashion that 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 occurs. Mm -hmm. I think is already a kind of a kind of mis misdirection. Yeah. So. Oh, this has been good. Great conversation. Glad we could do it, John. It's amazing how we can just solve these problems. <laughs> oh, in about 50 yeah. minutes. Every problem you uh, can solve in 50 minutes. Just, just. <laughs>